For the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the worthiness of God, and, uh, and we've been looking at it in this incredibly pivotal scene that occurs in the book of Revelation chapters 4 and 5, where John, with his poetry, takes us through the open door of heaven and into the very throne room of God himself, and he reveals through his poetry our amazing God. And we behold him as John beheld him. He says, look, he wants you to see him, right? And what does he look like? He's seated on the cosmic throne of heaven. He's blazing forth in the glory of diamonds and of rubies, colors of purity and of clarity and of judgment and of mercy. His throne is encircled by an emerald rainbow, itself the symbol of judgment, but also of mercy, symbolizing that God's final act is one of grace. And it's emerald, it's green, it's the color of life. It's beautiful. And we see all of God's attendants around the throne, you know, the seven roaring torches of the Spirit of God, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, the glassy sea, the lightning, the thunder, the whole shooting match, right? We saw all of that and we beheld all of heaven say, worthy are you to the one who sits on the throne. And you cannot help but join in when you see it. But then last week, we came back and looked at chapter 5, and we saw that the one who sits on the throne has something significant in his right hand. He has in his hand a scroll written on both sides, sealed up with seven seals, and we dissected what all of that means. But the bottom line is, what we saw is that that is the battle plan of God by which he will bring heaven to earth. It is the battle plan by which he will bring judgment and redemption, and by which He will usher His people into their inheritance. The new heavens, the new earth, the eternal and true promised land. And so it's not too much to say that absolutely everything for God's people depends on the opening of that scroll and then the faithful execution of everything contained in that scroll. And the great cry went out. Remember, the strong angel speaks, and his voice is so strong that it penetrates all of heaven, all of earth, and even the realm of the dead. No one misses the message, and he asks the most important question ever asked, who is worthy to take the scroll? The break it seals. And there is one worthy, but he waits a minute. He doesn't jump forward and go, oh, that would be me. He hangs on a second that everyone in heaven and everyone on earth and everyone under the earth knows that he alone is worthy, that he has no equal, that there is no one and nothing anywhere like him. And then John describes him. He's told to look to see the Lion of Judah, right? The Lion is the king. See, the poetry speaks of the beauties of Christ, of his uniqueness. He is uniquely worthy. He is the king. He never loses a battle, but he's of Judah, so he's a human. A human must suffer to save humans. A human must bear the weight of the punishment of the sins of humans. By a human, we got into all kinds of trouble. By a human, we get out of all kinds of trouble, but not just human. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the root of David, we're told. So he both precedes David and proceeds from David. Figure that out. How does that work? Only if he's God. We have sinned against an infinitely holy being. 
Our punishment is infinite, and only an infinite being can receive that punishment on our behalf. My goodness, it's no wonder everyone is quiet but Christ. And he walks up to the Father who, again, in his hand, has the battle plan of God. And he takes it out of his hand. He's not commanded to take it. He's not offered it. He's not told he needs to take it. He doesn't ask for it. It's his. He is the commander of the host of the Lord. He alone is worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, and to execute its judgments in its redemption and its inheritance. And last week, we finished chapter 5, and Jesus had the scroll in his hand, and we were like, right on, that is awesome, all is well in the universe, John's weeping had come to an end, there's a day when all our weeping will come to an end, I mean, we were all jacked up and excited about it, okay, but this week, what I want to do is turn the page with you just for a second and have you realize that now we're only on chapter 6, and it goes all the way through chapter 22, it's like, my goodness, there's a whole lot left. So what's that all about? Well, generally speaking, pretty much everyone in the Christian community agrees that what the rest of this book is about is the opening of that scroll. It's the breaking of the seals. It is the faithful execution of the battle plan of God spoken of through all of these images and signs and types and poetic language of all kinds that leaves us all scratching our heads and going, how does this work? What is this saying? When does this happen? And that's what we all kind of, you know, argue about. That's what there's not a lot of consensus necessarily on. And as I said last week, my heart is not one of disunity. It's one of unity. I love all of my brothers and sisters who happen to disagree with me on this issue. And I'd long to just sit around the table and in love discuss it. See, I really think we all actually want to know what the book teaches. We're sincere in that pursuit. I think we can help each other. But what I want to do today is to begin to tell you what I think the rest of the book is kind of saying and how it is that it plays out, and even to some degree, and I want to be careful with this, when some of these things happen, because I really believe that a lot of this book has happened already, and that can be dated. So there's a stunner. That sounds like a brand new view, doesn't it? The view that I'm going to give you goes all the way back to the 400s. It's about 1,600 years old at least, and it's about, you know, 1,500 years older than the prevailing view in America. Hang on to that. That's part of what we ought to think about. So I want to begin to tell you what I think this book is all about, and I want to do it by giving you sort of a 30,000-foot flyover. I am not going to get involved in all of the symbols, all of the images. I'm not going to tell you who the Antichrist is today. I will tell you plainly. I have absolutely no idea. I'm not really sure all of the details on all of these things. I don't know that anybody is. But I want to show you the bird's eye view. What I want you to see is the pattern for this book, because the pattern suggests what it's all about, how it all plays out, and to some degree, when, when. And to do that, I need to take you into the Old Testament, and I need to take you back to the story of Joshua and specifically of his conquest of the fortress city of Jericho because I believe that story provides the pattern for the entire book of Revelation. And I hope by the time we get done that you'll see that, and I hope just as much that you'll see Jesus and that you'll understand that 
this really matters, that it really makes a difference. If you remember the story of Joshua, then you know that he had the rather unenviable task of succeeding Moses as the leader of the nation of Israel, and you got to kind of pause and sort of feel that on his behalf for a minute, get into his sandals. My goodness, I don't think there were a lot of people lining up for that job. Think about Moses with me for a minute, because Moses is huge. But God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. God called Moses by name out of the burning bush. God took Moses and commissioned him to go to Egypt where his people had been enslaved for 400 plus years and were currently enslaved by probably the most powerful man in the entirety of the world. And through Moses, he delivers his people from over 400 years of slavery. And he does it miraculously. He performs miracle after miracle, plague upon plague upon plague upon plague. You know the stories, 10 plagues, which literally crush the nation of Egypt and that demonstrate the mastery of the Israelite God, of our God, over all of the Egyptian gods. They're very particular, these plagues. And finally, Pharaoh says, look, Moses, get out, and now, and so Moses leads the people of Israel out of 400 plus years of slavery. He leads them up to the shores of the Red Sea, where they are very unstrategically from their perspective, penned in. There's nowhere to run. And here comes Pharaoh. He can't have them as slaves. He understands that, but he's not happy about the way the deal went down and the destruction that occurred in his nation. And so he decides he's going to come out and wipe them all out, slaughter them by the shores of the Red Sea. And Moses raises his staff and the waters part. Go try that one this afternoon with your pool, okay? How do you follow that? Seriously, Moses brings water from a stone. Through Moses, God brings bread from heaven. It's called manna. The word manna means literally, what is it? It's kind of interesting, isn't it? I mean, even they didn't know what it is, so don't ask me. But it was tasty and nutritious, apparently, and they survived on it for decades. Most significantly, Moses is the guy that brings to us the law of God. And I want you to think about the law of God for a moment and don't lose track of it. What does the law of God do for you? Do you know what it does? It condemns you. You ever thought about that? The law of God pervades not just the way that we live, not just what we do. It pervades our thoughts. It pervades our words. It pervades our hearts. It pervades our intentions. It judges every aspect of our being 100% of the time. It comes to us and not only tells us what we are to do or are not to do, rather, but it also tells us what we are to do. Thou shalt not kill. And then by necessary implication, thou shalt champion the cause of life. It's both with every one of them. The law of God does us no favor if it doesn't drive us to Jesus. Moses brings to us the law. He brings to us death. And he takes the people of Israel, this lawgiver, and he brings them all the way up to the promised land. But very significantly, he can't bring the people into the promised land. The law cannot take you where you want to go. It just can't. For that, you need a Joshua. 
Moses brings him all the way up to the shores of the promised land, to the shores of the Jordan River. He cannot cross. Moses dies, and Joshua takes over, and he tries fitting his little feet into these big sandals. And it's a pretty intimidating deal. And the Lord, who knows that this is a really, really, really big job, comes to Joshua in Joshua 1, beginning in verse 2, and it says this. He says, Moses, my servant is dead. And I want to just pause there for a minute. This really has nothing to do with the pattern for the book of Revelation or end times or anything. But Joshua was devastated by the death of Moses. Moses is like his dad. Moses is his mentor. Moses is the guy that has made every major decision in the nation. Moses is the guy that Joshua probably hasn't made a decision for 40 years without consulting. He is his friend. He is his confidant. He loves that man who has died. And that happens to us in life, doesn't it? And I think we make mistakes in how we deal with it. I think that some of us don't grieve long enough. You know, grieving is a healing process. Grieving is something we need to actually give ourselves permission to do. We need to go through that process and let the Spirit of God come into our heart and heal us and work in us and work through us and restore us. Some of us don't grieve long enough. We just kind of, you know, jump back into whatever and stuff it and move on. And, and then others never stop grieving. It's like life stops wherever that loss occurred. But it hasn't stopped, not for you, not for Joshua. God's coming to Joshua and it's like, hey, bud, you're still alive. My kingdom is moving on. You have eternity with Moses. And right now I've got things for you to do and they're significant. They're important. I've left you here. I do everything for a reason. He says, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, get up. Cross this Jordan, you and all this people, I am going to use a Joshua to take my people where Moses could not take them. So who's greater than, you ask? Who is it? Who's the bigger of the two? I think Joshua's bigger. He's the greater. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people. Go where Moses could not take them, to the land which I am giving to them as an inheritance is the idea to the sons of Israel. And every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. That is to say, through the faithful execution of my battle plan, you, Joshua, a man named Joshua, will bring the people of God into their inheritance. And then he says this. He says, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. No one can withstand the great warrior whose name is Joshua. Hang on to stuff like that. Don't run past that. So if you know the story, Joshua then leads the people through the Jordan River, and it's kind of cool because God parts the river and lets them walk through on dry ground. That ought to sound kind of familiar. It's like the Red Sea. This is quite the statement of the Lord in terms of his favor and choice of Joshua here, isn't it? It's nice that the God goes before him on this. And immediately they come up against the great 
fortress city of Jericho. Why? Because where they crossed the Jordan River is right above the Dead Sea. It's like a few miles from ancient Jericho. Can you remember that? That's part of a pattern. And then this city of Jericho becomes Joshua's most famous victory. It's not his only victory, is it? I mean, it's not the only city that he fights against. These are not the only Canaanite people that he has to drive out of the land so that his people can have their inheritance. No, it's not any of those things, but it is given more attention in the Bible than any of his other victories, than any of his other conquests, than any of the other battles that he's involved in, and that's not by mistake. It is emblematic of the entirety of his campaign. It's hugely significant, and it happens according to a pattern. Jericho is a city that is famous for its great walls, if you know that story. It's a city that is walled up against God and the people of God, into which two spies, I'll call them witnesses, have already been sent. You see, Joshua, before they even crossed the Jordan, sent in some spies, two of them, to scout out the city and then to bring back testimony about its strengths, its weaknesses, how do we best attack it, and all that jazz. And while they're in the city, the king of Jericho discovers, hey, whoa, wait a minute, we got a couple of Israelites running around in here. Obviously, they're scouting us out, and he sends out the FBI and the CIA and the, you know, the Jericho police and all that, and they try to hunt these guys down to put them to death. So he takes these two spies, these two witnesses, and he places them under the sentence of death, but they find shelter in the house of a prostitute whose name is Rahab, and I'm going to use a very graphic term to describe her. You don't use this around your house, and I'm glad. But it's an important word. Rahab is a whore. Kind of blunt, right? Don't look down your nose at her. Don't be too quick to judge her. She's a hero. She's an amazing woman of faith, which is what's shocking no doubt to these spies. They, they enter into the house of, of this woman who's a prostitute, who's a whore, and they find that, that she actually has faith in the nation of Israel, the God of the nation of Israel. You know, she's heard of his exploits. She knows of his great deliverance of all of his people from Egypt. She is firmly convinced that their city is doomed and that, that rescue alone is found in the God of Israel. And so she brokers a deal in faith with these guys. She says, I'm going to hide you. I'm going to help you escape but you need to save me as a result. And they said, that's fine, not a problem. But here's the thing. When we show up, we're wiping out everything, everyone. And so what you need to do is identify your house so we don't wipe it out by mistake. And how do they tell her to identify it? Take a scarlet cord and hang it out your window. So what do we have so far? Well, we've got a city that is walled up against God and the people of God into which two spies, witnesses, have been sent who were then placed under a death sentence containing a whore identified by Scarlet against whom or against which a man named Joshua will do battle. So the Israelites cross the Jordan and they begin to prepare for battle. And on the eve of battle, Joshua encounters someone really, 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 really hugely significant. It says in Joshua 5, verse 13, Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and he looked, and behold, a man standing opposite him with his sword 
drawn in his hand. So you got to picture this, okay? Joshua's up. I picture it late at night. He's in his tent. I'm thinking he's got all his plans laid out on the table and he's rocking the coffee. He is figuring out how he's going to do this in light of the info and the intel that he got from the spies and all that stuff. He's making his battle plan. And he looks up and he sees this great warrior that he has never seen before. He's not one of his guys. And Joshua is an experienced soldier. He knows, by the way, this guy is holding his sword, very significant detail, if you're looking for patterns, that this man is a force to be reckoned with. And so he goes up to him, it says, and it says, Joshua went up to him and said to him, are you for us? In which case, really glad to see you. Or for our enemies, in which case I need to get my sword and I guess I'll be putting to test that promise of God that says no one will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. And I love the response. He said, no. (laughs) You know, so Joshua's like, okay, um, I'm sorry, maybe I confuse you. Let's do this again. Option A, you're for us. Option B, you're for our adversaries. Which is it? He says, neither. Neither option. He says, no, rather, I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. Now, hang on a second, because who is that? Who is worthy to take the battle plan of the Lord, to take the scroll and to break its seals? This is Jesus. Jesus appears at the beginning of this pattern to Joshua. You see? Dressed as a warrior, brandishing a sword. And he says, man, you're asking me the wrong question. The question is not whether I'm for you. The question is whether you're for me. And that's not just the question in the battle of Jericho, but that's the question in the battle of Tom, and that's the question in the battle of you. That's the question that every one of us needs to ask ourselves every single time we wake up. The question is never whether God is for us. Take a look at the scars. Take a look at the cross. The Lord has put that away as a, you know item for discussion. He has proven definitively once and for all that He is for His people. The question every single day is whether I and whether you are for Him. What does the Lord say about discipleship? He says, you're to take up your cross, how often? Daily. Cross is the language of death. He's saying, look, here's the deal. If you're going to follow me, you've got to take up your cross daily and follow me. That means that there are things every day that you're going to need to die to. Your agendas, your plans, your all the stuff you got on the table here, Joshua, just throw it away. Throw it away because I've got a whole different plan. Your schedule. Me, 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 I, I, I. My, my, my. There's a dying in the following of Jesus. But there's a living too. There's a living unto him. Joshua went up to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And Jesus says, nope, sorry, wrong question. I choose option C, which is, rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord and watch what Joshua does because it will tell you whether or not you're on God's side. 
It says, and Joshua fell on his face to the earth. He falls on his face before the Lord as if dead. Follow the pattern. Hang on to the details. And he bowed down and he said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? And I love that because it says, I'm on your side. He falls in the the posture of complete submission. And it's like he hands God the microphone to his life and says, here, just say whatever you want. He doesn't hand him the microphone and go, look, I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm up against a pretty fearsome city. This place is notorious for its wickedness and its brutality. Huge walls, big deal. I'm working the intel here, but I'm not figuring it out. And, you know, I'm sure there might be other things we could talk about, but this is what I need to hear from you on. He doesn't say that. He also doesn't say, and oh, by the way, here's the microphone, and maybe there are other things, but to be honest, this is all I really want to hear from you on. I don't want to hear about um, my sex life. I don't want to hear about the way that I'm living. I don't want to hear about dollars and cents. I don't want to hear about what I look at on the internet. I don't want to hear about the ethics in my business. I don't want to hear about the way that I treat my wife or husband or parents or children. I don't want to hear about this person that you want me to forgive. I don't want to hear about fill in the blank. I think many of us are afraid of what the Lord would say. It's kind of like we already know. And we choose that above Him. So if we hand Him the microphone at all, we hem Him in and go, look, uh, I only have about five minutes here, and this is what we need to focus on. Not Joshua. I'll tell you what else he doesn't do. He doesn't say to the Lord, hey, you know what? So great to see you. I I mean, I'm, I'm touched that you would show up as a sign of support, I guess. But as you can see, I've already got it all figured out. So I'm going to hand you the microphone, and here's what I'm looking for. I bless your plans. Nope. Just says, and Joshua fell on his face to the earth, as if dead, bowed down and said to him, Say whatever you want to say to me. What has my Lord to say to his servant? And then what does Jesus do? What's the pattern? He gives Joshua the battle plan of God by which he will bring judgment and by which he will deliver inheritance to his people. And what is that plan primarily? Well, primarily, it's the plan for the destruction of a city that is walled up against God and the people of God, into which two spies, you might even want to call them witnesses, have been sent, placed under a death sentence, containing a whore identified by Scarlet, against which a man named Joshua will battle. And now listen to the plan. And bear in mind the details. Joshua 6, verse 2, The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city, not once, but seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpet. You follow it? It's telescoping sevens. Seven days, you're going to march around the city. On the seventh day, instead of just doing it once, seven times. With the seven priests, seven trumpets. And then he says, it shall be, meaning after you've circled it seven times on the seventh day, 
that when they, the priests with the seven trumpets, make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall what? Shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up every man straight ahead, and as crazy as that sounds, that's exactly what they do, and it's exactly what happens. For six days, once a day, they walk around the city. They get to the seventh day. And we read this, Joshua 6, verse 15. It says that on the seventh day, they rose early at the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only on that day, they marched around the city seven times, meaning they only did this on the seventh day. At the seventh time, when the priest blew the seven trumpets... Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city shall be under the ban. It and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot, the whore, and all who are with her in the house shall live. You're like, man, that is so unkind. It is so incredibly insensitive of Joshua and of you. Actually, it's accurate. And it's not just accurate of her. Don't miss that. Don't condemn this woman lest you find yourself looking in the mirror. Verse 20, so the people shouted and the priests blew the trumpets. And when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, that great weapon of holy war in Israel, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. Verse 22, Joshua said to the two men who had spied out these witnesses, the land, go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all that she has out of there as you have sworn to her. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all that she had. They also brought out all of her relatives, this host, and placed them outside the camp of Israel. And then what do they do once the people of God have come out of the city? The Canaanites, who yet believe the prostitute who was a great woman of faith in the end. After they come out, they burn the city with fire and all that was in it. But Rahab the whore is saved, and then if you know the story, there's a wedding. She marries into Israel. In fact, she marries into the royal line of Judah. In fact, she marries into the royal line of Jesus. When you go to the list of the genealogies of Christ in the New Testament in Matthew's genealogy, you find that she is a mother of the Lord Christ himself. That's called transformation. That's the message and the mystery and the wonder of the gospel, guys. She becomes a mother in the line of Jesus who, by the way, and we've talked about this in the past, was not named Jesus. It's not his name. Now, that's his name in Greek, and the New Testament is written in Greek, and that's why we call him Jesus, because when we read the Greek New Testament and we translate it into English, we do it phonetically, and it's Jesus. But the Jesus in the Greek language is the translation of the Hebrew name of Christ, which is Yeshua. It is Joshua. He was named Joshua, and that's important. Where does Joshua, the true Joshua, who is Christ, begin his um, public ministry? 
He crosses the Jordan River. Anybody want to guess where? Right above the Dead Sea, a couple miles from the ancient city of Jericho. He's entering into the land, you see, as the new and the true Joshua, and he will take the land, and he will battle against a city. He will battle, my opinion, not just mine, against the great city of Jerusalem, the new Jericho, the city that he specifically prophesies in Matthew 24, which is what we'll look at next week, will be dismantled utterly, and which was dismantled in A.D. 70. He battles against the city, but particularly against the temple and against everything the temple represents. That's what that's all about. And what's the pattern? What is his battle plan? Well, what is the book of Revelation? I mean, think about it for a minute. Just in broad brushes from beginning to end, how does it open? It opens with John on the island of Patmos, all of a sudden experiencing this sudden and unexpected appearance by Christ, who appears, parenthetically, as a warrior brandishing a sword. Does that sound familiar? And what does John do? He falls on his face before the Lord as if dead. And what does John receive from the Lord? Same thing Joshua did, a vision, a battle plan of holy war against a city. That's what the book is about. A great city that is walled up against God and the people of God into which two witnesses, if you've read the book, are sent. And they actually die. And the great city contains a great, and here's why I had to use the word, because it's the word of Revelation. It contains a great whore. And she's dressed in scarlet. It's fascinating, isn't it? And what's the battle plan? Because it's telescoping sevens. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. When the seventh trumpet sounds in the book of Revelation, all of heaven shouts. Revelation eleven fifteen. all of heaven shouts, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. And guess what? The city falls. And God then calls out His people from the city and burns it. And then there's a wedding. The wedding supper of the Lamb, or the marriage supper of the Lamb. You've heard that. And ultimately it ends with the true Joshua bringing the true Israel into the true promised land, which is the new heaven and the new earth. And as with the Canaanite people of Israel, or as with the people of Israel, rather, in the Old Testament, who inherited the land of Canaan, not after that emblematic battle immediately, but after a whole campaign, so also will we inherit the true promised land. When the Lord is done, not just destroying the temple, he did that in 8070, but destroying what the temple represents. That battle goes on. And when it's over, we will receive the new heavens and the new earth. So my point is that John has patterned the whole book of Revelation, I think, very precisely and even very clearly after the story of Joshua and his conquest of Jericho. And you can read about that in the fifth century. I'm not the first to see it. But right now, what I want to do is to close by asking, so what? 
Um, because that's my biggest fear in teaching this book. It's one of the reasons I haven't done it until now. As I said last week, you know, one of my biggest fears is that I'm going to come in and you're just going to have like image overload about 10 minutes in and go, oh, you know. And I understand that. But worse, I know that every week people come in here with real issues, real struggles, real problems, real questions. And if you're not parsing what I'm saying, if you're not carefully following what I've said, mostly by implication, then pretty much all you've heard so far is that I think that the book of Revelation is patterned after the conquest of Jericho and that it was mostly but not completely fulfilled in AD 70. And it's just like, wow, Tom, that's great. Very helpful. But that's not all that I've said. I've also talked about the true Joshua who can take you places that the law of God cannot bring you. You see, the lie of the temple, and we'll look at it next week, is the same lie that every human being everywhere has to deal with, and it is the lie that somehow we can be good enough by keeping the law of God to be His friend, to join His family, to enter into His presence, to enjoy Him forever and ever in the new heavens and in the new earth. And here's the deal. You're probably like one of the greatest people on the planet. By your standards, the standards of your family, the standards of your friends, the standards of our society, the standards of our community, I am not putting down anybody for not being a good person. I'm just saying that when you look into the law of God, there's no one left standing. Think of what comes out of your mouth. Think of what goes on in your heart. And understand that the law of God is a reflection of the blazing holiness and perfections of God Himself, and He accepts nothing less in His presence. Stunning. Moses dies. He's, he's on the other side of the Jordan. He can't bring the people of God into the promised land. All he brings is condemnation and death. It is left to the true Joshua to do what Moses could not do. And he does that by living a perfect life in the place of his people as a human. A human buying the pleasure of God for humans and dying and suffering, though he is innocent, for the guilt of his people infinitely and rising from the dead. He's the lamb who was slain. He looks and he sees the lamb, you remember, but he's standing. And yet it's clear that he had once died. Who is worthy to open the scrolls and break its seals? Only Christ. And that's relevant hugely. And parenthetically, the question is not whether he's on our side. The question is whether we're on his. And how do you know? What do you do with the microphone? What do you do with it? The posture is face down before the one who is worthy. And the right response is, here's the microphone. Say whatever you want to say to me. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you for the glory of Christ that we see in your word. Lord, for the magnificence 
of this one who is unique in all of heaven, in all of earth, and even under the earth. For the one Father who has no equal, and for the one who is able to take Rahab's, and by the power of his love, transform every one of us into the family of God to take away all of our impurity and to replace it with purity, all of our guilt that He might replace it with righteousness. Father, to shelter us that we might not be visited with judgment, but instead with mercy and with love. Our hope is in Him. And I pray, God, as we look into this complex stuff, that Your Spirit will give us ears to hear, that He would give us eyes to see and to behold the Lord Jesus in all of His glory and the safety that is found in Him and the wisdom and the appropriateness of being face down, of giving to Him the microphone, and then of saying, Lord, what do you want to say to me? And then obeying that word. We praise you for moments like this when we come into your presence. And I pray, God, that we would leave different. In Jesus' name, amen.